John chapter 1, open it up. We're going to be looking at the first 14 verses, although can you even look at the first 14 verses in, what have we got, 20 minutes? It's chockers. If, if you've ever started John's Gospel before, you'll know these first 18 verses are like a synopsis or like a summary of the whole book. And John's Gospel is the kind of Gospel where you can just read it at a surface level and get so much out of it. But John's Gospel has got layers, theological layers, and you can plumb those depths. And I want to encourage you to do whatever you can to go deeper. In fact, I'm looking, Janelle, I remember you started reading John's Gospel, what was it, six months ago or something or longer? And it did things for you, yeah? Big things. So if you want to know what John's Gospel can do, talk to Janelle um, or just dig into this with us. Um, let me start by saying this. Do you ever have those moments, like those existential moments, where you ask yourself the big questions about life? It can come at weird times. You can be sitting on the toilet or you can be out in the open or you can be in the middle of work and you have this question that pops to your mind like, who am I and where am I? And I wonder if there really is a God. I, I, I have these moments regularly. I don't know if it's just me. But I had one of these moments the other day where I thought, what is going on? But that, that was the lie. Like, seriously, what is going on? And I'll tell you what it was based on. It was based on the fact that this, if this is true... If there is a God, and if that God is the one who made us, and that God is the God who loves us, and, it's, and he's the God who's actually come to save us, and Jesus is the Lord of the universe, what is going on? Why are there so few people loving and following Jesus? That's the moment I was having. Like, why are there so few of us? If this is true, why isn't everyone in all of creation? following God. That was definitely one of those moments. I don't know if you have those moments. Um, I don't know if you know the percentages of the people in the Coffs region who actually are in church. Like I did some kind of stats, you know, at the beginning of this year. And um, there's a lot of great churches around Coffs, but you add them all up. And my calculations added up to somewhere between three and four percent, depending on which kind of churches you count. But let's count them all. Every church, any church that claims to be a church, about 4%, okay? Maybe if you'd be really generous, bring it up to 5 if you want. But what does that mean? It, it means 95% of the people all over the Coffs Coast are not in church, and what that means is likely far from God and not following Jesus and on the road towards destruction. That's huge, 95%. And I found myself thinking, how is this possible? How is it possible that nine out of every ten people I walk past in the street have either no idea who Jesus is or they've just wandered deliberately away from him? Why are there so few? What's the issue here? Is it God? You know, does God need to make himself clearer? What do you reckon? Like, is God holding himself back so that the vast majority of people are just kind of missing him? Like, does God need to do a better job of making himself known and revealing himself? Or is the problem us? Now, you can probably, if, if you've been in the Bible for long enough, you'll know where this is going. The problem's never God. <laughs> the problem's always us, actually. I mean, that's what you do when you, when you read through the Scriptures, doesn't it? It keeps telling us about the goodness of God and the failure of humanity. It's, it's pretty devastating on your you know, and your ego as a human when you read the Bible. The issue is not with God's failure to, failure to reveal himself. 
The issue is with our failure to recognise who God is. And that's what you get here in the beginning of John. One of the things, the big things that really jumps out is this concept of how God has revealed himself, but there's something called darkness that's going on in this world, and it's darkness inside of humanity that actually causes us to fail to even recognise him or what he's doing. And it's devastating. So what has God done to reveal himself anyway? Well, stacks. And we're going to look through some of the key areas, the way God's revealed himself to us today. Well, that's what John, the first few verses, do. But I want to start with more of an empathetical question, if I can. Um, How do you reckon God feels, it's a bigger question, how do you reckon God feels to have made a creation in his own likeness, poured out his love on us, only to have that creation turn its back on him and fail to recognise him? And just completely ignore him. Have a look at verse 11 or verse 10 and 11. Chapter 1, you're there with me? Come there with me. And I just want to dive straight in. Verse 10 and 11. He, this is Jesus, he was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognise him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Can you catch a sense of God's experience of coming to a creation that he made and knows and loves and made for himself only to be for people to fail to recognise him? How do you reckon that feels? Maybe you can imagine for a little bit with me. Um, imagine you're a, you're a dad. Now, you might not need to imagine because you might be one. A dad of a family. Now, imagine this. You're a dad who comes home one day and you come home to a family that doesn't recognise you. What would that be like? You rock up to the front door, and maybe the pet, the dog, is the first one to get there. Usually is the case, yeah? And the dog comes to the front door, and the dog is just barking at you because you're a stranger to it. And then the kids come running because, you know, the dog was barking, and the kids stop, and they stare at you, and they look at you, and they turn around, and they say, Mum, there's a man at the door. And then mum comes and she stands behind the kids and says, yes, can I help you? Like, how would that be if you're the father of that household to come home to that? It'd be even worse, wouldn't it, if that household actually did know you, but they decided they didn't want to anymore. They decided you were going to be dead to them and they were going to reject you and ignore you. Are you catching a sense of how possibly God feels when he comes to a creation who he loves, that he made, and they've decided to fail to recognise him? And I say decided to because it's a willful thing that we do. Something's going on with this mic. If you can catch a sense of that, it's heart-wrenching. There's pain inflicted upon our Creator as creation failed to receive him. What will you be like towards your creator? Will you be one who fails to receive him and you inflict the pain upon him or you do the very opposite? The Gospel of John, this book that we're diving into right now, an account of Jesus' life written by John, that's why it's called John, is written so that you, the reader would recognise Jesus, that you would receive Jesus. 
I mean, if you flick right to the end of John's Gospel, and some of you will know this already, chapter 20, verse 31, John says, I've written this, I've written this so that you might believe and have life. That's why this book's been written, so that you would believe, that you would recognise who Jesus is and get life, real life, because you know Jesus. Now, the writer of this book is John the disciple. Like, so one of Jesus' 12 disciples, John, wrote this particular account of Jesus' life and John actually considers himself to be Jesus' best mate. That's, and that's kind of obvious through the book. In fact, he keeps referring to himself in the book, but when he does, he doesn't say, and John did this. He says, and the disciple who Jesus loved... That's how he refers to himself because like, he sees himself as the one who's the closest to Jesus. And I think it's actually likely true. I think John was Jesus's best mate. So you are reading here an account of the life of Jesus written by Jesus's best mate. And you know what his best mate wants you to know or have is he wants you to recognise Jesus like he recognised Jesus. He wants you to meet Jesus like he met Jesus. He wants you to believe that Jesus was not just some guy, but actually the Son of God who came to rescue you, just like he came to know Jesus that way. He wants you to receive Jesus just like he did. So so John actually, this this book that we're diving into is a pretty, um, it's an amazing book. It's a really well-crafted account of Jesus's life. I mean, if you've read the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, which are called the Synoptics, which means same, they're all quite similar in material and order. John stands out on his own. John wrote his gospel a bit later after a lot more reflection and he crafted it into account where he aligned up just seven of Jesus' miracles with teaching about the identity of Jesus. They're awesome. So the miracles are actually, you can call them signs and they all point to true things about Jesus' identity as the Son of God. I'll give you a classic example. I can't help but to kind of look at the whole book first or think about it with you. Classic example is Jesus feeds the 5,000, yeah? Some of you not know what I'm talking about. Others of you know what I'm talking about. He feeds 5,000 men and women and children, so probably more like 10 or 15,000 people, with fish and bread. And then he follows that miracle with teaching saying, I am the bread of life. That's the way John arranges it for us because he doesn't want us to just be amazed at miracles. He wants, to, he wants us to see these as signs that point to the true identity of Jesus so we would know him too and receive him too Ugh. and get life in him too. So guys, there's the challenge for this whole series. If you're new to this, here's your opportunity to get to know who Jesus really is and to be able to receive him and get life. If you've already done that, this is your opportunity to go on knowing Jesus and to know him deeper and actually know and to live in him in a deeper way. And the great news is, um, in regards to God revealing himself to us, he's gone out of his way to make himself known to us, shown himself to us, revealed himself to us. And, and, and now let's kind of get into those first 14 verses. And I'm going to have to be brief now because I spent so long just introducing things. But hopefully that's helpful. I'm going to point out three main ways that God reveals himself to us. And if you're taking notes, scribble this. In fact, I would encourage you guys, bring something to scribble on if that's the kind of thing that helps you to concentrate. 
Like we're getting into summer now, it gets warm, it's easy to drift, it's Sunday afternoon, we most of have had big afternoons. It's the time to focus in and really follow. So bring something to scribble on, bring a pen, and not because what I say is amazing, but because we're looking at the Word of God and this is worth remembering and learning, okay? So, or scribble in your phone or whatever, don't check Facebook. No. Um, so three ways in which God has revealed himself to us that's recounted for us here in these first bunch of verses. Number one, God reveals himself through, to us through creation. Secondly, through human conscience, your own conscience. And thirdly, through Jesus. That's the, the ultimate way that he reveals. So let's look at creation. Um, come and have a look there with me. Verse one. Look how John starts his gospel. In the beginning... Which reminds you straight away of Genesis. So it takes you straight back there. And John does that deliberately because he wants you to be thinking back there as he starts talking about Jesus. Because look what he says. In the beginning was the Word. So he doesn't start with, in the beginning Jesus got born. He says, in the beginning was the Word. And he starts talking about this thing called the Word, which is a little bit cryptic. But look what he, so what is this Word? Well, he says, and the word was with God. Okay, so this word thing, it's with God. And the word was God. Okay, so the word is with God and the word was God. So is God. You read on and it says, he was with God. So you know this word is not just this thing, it's a person. The word is a he. And then I'm going to cheat and jump with me and cheat with me at verse 14. And let's just see really clearly who the Word is. Verse 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. So the Word is Jesus, or even more accurately, the Word is the Son of God who puts on flesh later and actually becomes the man Jesus but prior to that we regard him as the second person of the trinity God the son okay so here's what we're talking about we're talking about we can we can say Jesus but most of the time I'll say God the son okay and what we know about God the son is number one he was there in the very beginning he was with God and he actually was God fully God and then look what he does verse three through him all things were made Without him, nothing was made that has been made, which just says the negative as well as the positive to emphasize the point, which is in the very beginning, it was the Son of God there creating, which is why he's called the Word here. Because how did God create in the very beginning? He created with his, his Word. He spoke it into being. And as he spoke it into being, you just you see and understand that to be the very Son of God and the life of the Son of God actually flowing out to create new beings. This is what we're talking about with Jesus. Now, read on. It says, <clears throat> In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. So what this tells us is that in the very beginning, you've got the Son of God, and in the Son of God is this thing called life. And it's actually from his own life that all things come into being. So how did creation come to exist? How did life actually happen? Well, it was an outflowing of, of the Son of God's own life. From one being came all things, because it was in him that life was and all things that exist have come from his life. 
He is the one from whom all things have come. Now think with me for a minute. Don't tune out. Tune back in. What this means is that every single living creature that exists, animal, plant, sky, universe, all of creation is alive because it has the life of the Son of God in it. So what ought we be able to see when you look at creation? The Son of God. You ought to be able to see something about God. Yep. Because it's his life that's in everything and nothing was made without him. So, guys, this is, this is the first and most basic way that God reveals himself. The, the way you can know that there even is a God is by looking at nature, looking at all of creation. And you look at some of the Psalms and they say that, don't they? So Psalm chapter 8 talks about how you can see God's fingerprints in the skies when you have a look at them. Psalm 19 talks about how the skies proclaim the work of his hands. They call forth speech. It's almost like the skies are screaming out at us, shouting out at us, Oi, there's a God. God's real. He's alive. He's here. And, and so that actually all of humanity are responsible, culpable, really, to actually respond and know at least something about God because you live in creation. So Romans chapter 1 verse 20 says that God's divine nature can be clearly seen in creation in such a way that all mankind are actually without excuse. You ought to at least be able to come to the conclusion that there is a creator, that there is a maker simply by looking at nature. So there's the first way God reveals himself. And I've got to say, just in reflecting on that, how tragic is it? How tragic is it? that we and others look at nature and are amazed by its beauty and we do documentary after documentary on it and we come to these kind of conclusions. People say, wow, to Mother Nature. Or they say, wow, to the random physical processes that brought this beauty into being. What? Come on. Beautiful things don't emerge from random physical processes that are just a big fat accident. Beautiful things emerge from a beautiful being who intended them to be. And that's our God. Or some people, we look at beauty and we just kind of get stuck on the beauty in and of itself, just consuming the beauty, rather than to look behind the beauty and actually behold the creator of the beauty. That's the classic thing we do these days, isn't it? You, you see something beautiful and the first thing we think to do is to consume it and share it. Yeah, so we snap it and we throw it on our feed. You know what we're not good at doing these days? We're not good at just beholding. It's not even a word we use these days, is it? But to see something beautiful, you know what we're meant to do? You're meant to just stop and go, wow, and just stay there. And let that reflection lead you to something bigger rather than, wow, quick, where's my phone on? No, it's changing. It was redder a minute ago and I've got to share it with everyone or it didn't happen. It's, we've got a weird compulsion at the moment to consume and it means we miss beauty, miss just enjoying it, but particularly we miss beholding the creator of it. I'm spending way too long on these points. I've got to go a bit longer, a bit quicker, a bit longer, whatever. Here's the second thing. The way God reveals himself to us is through human conscience. Did you notice there in that verse it says, um, in him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. 
It's ha- actually hard to know what to do with all this language because it's, it's actually just introducing themes that kind of flow out through the rest of John's Gospel. And there's a lot of um, theme of light and darkness in John's Gospel. You'll see that. But the fact that his life is the light of mankind says that there's something particular about mankind, uh, which, which you go down that track and you understand, yeah, we're the ones made in his image and there's a light in us from him that's to do with his life and it hasn't been extinguished by the darkness, verse 5. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. I think that translation's better than the earlier NIV one that says slightly differently. But the darkness has not overcome it. And I think what this is describing for us is this. The human beings, humankind, we are in, in a particular sense the offspring of God. And it's his life that's in us in a particular way so that there is a light in us that ought to enable us from a very deep down place have reflections about our origins and the one who made us that other animals just would never have. And that's the case, isn't it? Humans are the only ones who do those deeper reflections of where did I come from? We don't really know if the animals do that. They don't appear to do it. We certainly do it constantly. Every human has the life of God in them so that deep in their conscience and in their psyche, there's a, there, is a, there is a knowing There is a voice that says something along the lines of, you were made, mister, you know? There is a God and he's worthy of your worship and you probably exist for him, not yourself. This is this life, this light that exists. Now it's blinded by sin and it's shielded and scarred. It's the truth that's suppressed by our own darkness that lurks in us, our own sin. But as Ecclesiastes 3.11 would say, God placed eternity in the hearts of mankind. We're created for worship. It's deep in our conscience and it's in our psyche. And you can see it, you can see evidence of it in every single race and ethnicity and language group around the world right through history. Because here's what you can notice is that humans have been, and this is not my terminology, humans have been incurably religious You know what I mean by that? Human beings through all society have wanted to worship. And they either make up a God of their own or they worship the thing in front of them or they worship their own family or they just worship themselves and their own epic life they're trying to live. But humans want to worship. We're actually wired for worship. We're created for worship. But worship our maker, not anything else. And you can see in every race, they worship. You can see in every race an instinct to pray. Even people who call themselves atheists, when heavy stuff's going down in their family or in their country, everyone says, our prayers are with you. And some people just start praying, though they've never acknowledged to God. There's an instinct to pray. There's a common understanding, I think, deep down about good and evil right through different people groups. And it's because we're made in his likeness, by him, in him, like him, with a conscience about him that niggles away at every single human. And we can muffle the voice and pursue all kinds of things, thinking life's elsewhere, but it's there. You might call this general revelation, these first two things I've talked about, the way God generally reveals himself to humanity through nature and creation and through conscience. But God does more than simply that. The ultimate way God reveals himself to us is... It's Jesus. Look at verse 14. Here's where we're arriving. Here's where we're going. This is the big one. 
Verse 14, the word, that's the son of God, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So God the son steps onto the stage of human history and lives in full view of humanity and this is the ultimate way God reveals himself to us. I mean, skip to verse 18. Look at verse 18 with me. No one's ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. So the best way to get the best understanding you can about God is by looking at the one and only Son. And here's the thing, the one and only Son came and put on flesh. He actually became a human. And there is no religion, there's no philosophy that even comes close to this. A God who would get off his throne and actually come down among his creatures and become one of them for two main reasons. Number one, just to reveal himself, but number two, to actually rescue. Yeah? And this is what our God has done. I love the language here in verse 14 where it says the word of God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That word dwelling is the word tabernacle, which is meant to make you think back to when, you know, the time in the wilderness where God would dwell among his people in a tent called the tabernacle, but it was kind of temporary and they couldn't really step into his presence. Only, you know, a priest once a year, you know, could come in and represent the people. But here we've got the Son of God coming making his dwelling among us. So when I hear the word dwelling and tabernacle, I think he's come camping. And there's no better way to know a person than to go camping with them. Am I right? Like I just got back off a two-week camping trip and, you know, the things people learn about you when they camp next to you, stuff gets real. You know, you know a person. You're giggling because you've been camping, yeah? God came camping among us. And not even in a temporary way, in a really permanent way. He actually put on flesh, became a human, stepped into broken humanity, became one of us. It's phenomenal. And lived among us. And there's verifiable evidence that Jesus really did walk the earth. In fact, you won't find a professor in ancient history anywhere in the world who denies the existence of Jesus... But the big conclusion you've got to come to is whether you believe Jesus, the man who walked the earth 2,000 years ago, really was the one and only Son of God in the flesh. And you know what the Gospel of John wants to help you believe and see? Is that that's exactly the case. The one and only Son has come. He became the man Jesus. He put on flesh. And here's something that's just, it's always blowing my mind. God didn't just put on flesh for a moment and then ditch it and go back to just being the Trinity without any humanity in it. Think with me for a minute. When Jesus died and rose again from the dead, he appeared in what? It was a resurrected human body and he was ascended back into heaven in what? That resurrected human body. So Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the Father in what? In his resurrected humanity. Which tells you what about God? It tells you a lot of things. It tells me this about God. God was so keen to save us that he was prepared to take on humanity forever in a sense. The the Trinity changed as it took on humanity. Have you ever considered that one? 
I mean, you've got to be careful you don't push it too far because God will always remain being God. But he took on our flesh to rescue us. And when we get to glory, we will see the Son of God in his resurrected body, which is how we know we too will be in resurrected human bodies for all eternity. I'm going off on a tangent now, but it just kind of blows my mind how merciful a God would be to do that for us and to pay that kind of price. He put on flesh. He made his dwelling among us. He camped among us. He got down and dirty. And what does it say? So we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is what we'll have revealed to us as we go through the Gospel of John. We will see this man, Jesus, revealed as the one who's the one who's come from the Father. We'll get to see the glory of God and we'll get to see how he's full of grace and truth. We'll see the glory in the miracles and the signs that display truth the truth about who Jesus really was. We'll get to see the glory of Jesus, the Son of God, in his perfect obedience towards the Father, a perfect obedience that actually has lived on our behalf. He lives a life on our behalf, the perfect life you and I could never live. And then he goes to the cross, and that's where we see grace. He's full of grace and truth. He goes to the cross to stand in our place and take our sin upon himself and die with it and deal with it so you and I can actually have an incredible exchange where we receive the perfect life that the Son of God lived on our behalf and he receives our broken, sinful wretchedness and deals with it and dies with it and cops the wrath of the Father because of it and we get grace and we get mercy. This is what the Word who put on flesh has done for us. What a gift. Uh, we didn't actually read the passage. So each week we need to actually just have the Word of God read. So stop me. Interrupt me, okay? So how about we actually make sure we do that? How about we read the Word now just to finish? And actually as we're reading, you guys are going to share another song with us. You guys might want to come up and get ready. And Jake, would you come and read the Word to us, mate? Yeah, and then pray. Good on you. Alrighty, John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of the man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. God, 
Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in this way. I thank you that we know you, that we can trust you, that we can love you and we can worship you. Thank you for the sacrifice that you made for us to call a people to yourself. And I just ask that we would not squander this sacrifice, that we would honour you with our lives and bring as many people as we can into your family. Amen.